Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Today is deployed hope number seven. We've been talking about the if we have hope in the Lord, if we have hope in the truth of God, if we have hope in the revelations of Scripture, each one of these hopes, and they are individual, the Scripture is full of them, each one of them can be put to work in our life. Each one of them can deploy, be deployed. It's like every circumstance that comes along, there's a, there's a special hope of God that can go to work in that circumstance. And so for the last six weeks, we've been discussing how we might deploy specific hopes into our daily life. Today, the hope that I would focus our attention upon is, is one that has the possibility of stirring the hearts of true believers more than perhaps any other. It's a hope, however, that seems so far from reality that we might despair of it ever being fulfilled. However, it is a hope that is perhaps more yearned for and more pipe-dreamy than any other. It's a hope that is so regularly contradicted by the realities of life that it can seem truly unobtainable, though it's desperately desirable. It's a hope, though, that can be nevertheless put into words. We're going to try to do that this morning. It can be imagined. It can be desired. It can even be pursued. Now, it's a hope. It's a hope that stimulated the prophet Isaiah long centuries ago to prophesy that it, this hope, would one day be a reality. And so in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, my hope, our hope for this day is discovered. Here's how Isaiah expressed it. The earth, he said, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, 9. He wrote about a thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth, and Jesus walked on the earth 2,000 years before our footsteps were put upon it. Almost 3,000 years. And Isaiah the prophet promised us, he prophesied, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Would that not be a wonderful thing? Everywhere you go, people would be tuned into the truths of God. Everyone, everywhere. You just walk in the room and and you would know that the things they're thinking about are some of the very things of God that you're thinking about. Everywhere, people would be tuned into the truths of God. Everyone you meet would be familiar with, and yes, supportive of the teachings of Scripture. Here's how I specifically define this hope of mine. My hope defined, there is coming a day 
when the truths of God will be known worldwide, when falsehood and ignorance will be a thing of the past. Does that sound good? Falsehood and ignorance, especially of the truths of God, will be a thing of the past. Everybody will know what God wants them to know. Everyone will agree together and share together in the glory of the truth that God has revealed and that they are, in fact, experiencing. Oh, how men of faith have yearned for that day to arrive. And yet men of faith, all since Isaiah wrote those words down, have recognized that that day has not yet come. And that society seems generally, in fact, to move in the opposite direction. In the run-up to the great civil war that would convulse our nation and would demand the sacrifice of so many young lives, a great compassionate preacher named James Russell Lowe penned these sobering but hopeful lines. Here's what he wrote as part of a long, long poem, hymn. He wrote, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. That was a recognition of the conditions of the day, and yet it was a, a positive, hope-filled statement about what God is presently doing and, and what will one day come. That scaffold where men would, would put to death truth sways the future. Indeed, there were some truths in that day, one in particular that swayed the future of this nation and spawned a war and established a precedent that in this land, all men will be treated equally because they have been, in fact, created equal by the Creator himself. To expand upon the remarks made at Gettysburg by the great American president, Abraham Lincoln, in the midst of those dark days, let me add a single word to a line that he gave. We are still. We are still engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And the reason that is, and the reason for the distress in our land today is simply because the knowledge of the Lord does not cover this land like the waters cover the sea. Our land today, in an almost eerie way, resembles the day of the great British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who wrote these words, and we illustrate them for you here. With a picture of him behind them. The present age, he said, this would be in the 1860s. The present age is so flippant, I would add shallow, superficial, 
unreflective. The present age is so flippant that if a man loves the Savior, he is, we could add, declared a fanatic. Just to say you love God. Just to say you love the Lord Jesus. Just to say you love the Savior. That was enough in his day, he said, for a person to be declared not just a Christian, not just a churchgoer, but a fanatic. And if he hates the powers of evil, he is, I would add, denounced as a bigot. Does that sound familiar? Have things changed much in a hundred and some years? Almost a hundred, yes, over a hundred years? Truth, particularly God's truth, has never been the darling of the masses. But there's coming a day when it will be. Scripture tells us, and this is our hope, there is a day coming when God's truth will be most, both known and loved. What a great hope that is. So how might I, how might we actually put that hope to work in our world today where God's truth is not broadly known or deeply loved? Here's my hope deployed. We express it this way, since my hope is in the fact that the truths of God will one day be known worldwide, I will endeavor to share truths about God with all those I meet today. Now, that's a deployment, it being the seventh one we've talked about. That is a deployment that more than any we've attempted thus far it's one that requires courage and carefulness. Courage will be needed if we try to put our hope to work this way. To say, I will try to share some of God's truth, some truths about God with everyone that I meet today. Now, that will require courage because words containing God's truth become fighting words to many people who hear them. Take some courage just to speak them. Not to get into a fight, but just to speak them and then receive the response that they might bring. Take some courage to put this hope to work. Secondly, it requires carefulness, I say, because some of God's truths are more foundational and surely less controversial than others. So what truths of God do we choose to share? Out of the whole bucket full, the whole Bible full. What, what truths, if, if we're trying to help people come to know some truths of God that are essential for them, so that in their life, the knowledge of the Lord might begin to cover their mind, might begin to cover their heart, the way that the waters cover the sea, and we want to play a little bit of a, a part in that, what might we suggest we share? And what I want to share with you this morning is this, six truths. <laughs> six truths that all men need to hear. And I believe these are six most fundamental 
and absolutely essential truths of God. Each one of them opened the door to many more. But I would suggest to you and to me, if we're talking to someone and we're thinking, what what about God could I share? What about God's word? What about God's truth would be maybe the first thing that I ought to bring up? What are the most basic things? Because we have to understand today, in contrast to the world that Charles Spurgeon preached in, even though he made that quote, most English people knew the Bible fairly well. Charles Spurgeon could preach like he was teaching a theology class. And he expected his audience to know exactly what he was talking about. They knew the Bible forwards and backwards. We're talking about people in our day and age that if you said, could you name the four Gospels, they wouldn't even know what you're asking. So, we're a long ways away from the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Lord covering this land like the waters cover the sea. So what might be some of the most essential things that people need to know that we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ could uh, make the first things we try to be sure they know? Well, this morning I want to just share six. Two things about the Father, two things about the Son, and two things about the Holy Spirit that are absolutely essential to help us begin to get a package of truth out into the air a package of truth that we need to be sure we know. (laughs) We need to be sure that those members of our family that we involve ourselves with know and that anyone who is around us with any regularity know. Six things. They're absolutely critical. So let's go through them. Here we go. Two truths about the Father, Abba. We'll start with them. Number one He is the creator of all. Now, Spurgeon didn't have to bring that up. The man who wrote in the United States, Lowell, during the Civil War, that preacher, he would not have to bring that up. Abraham Lincoln didn't really have to defend the fact that all men are created equal and and were engaged in a great civil war testing the commitment to the equality of all men under God. He just assumed that would be a starting point for everyone. You and I live in a different world. We live in a world where a great number of Americans would not at all know this or believe this or build their lives upon it. And so the first truth about God the Father is that he is the creator. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. Now, the Bible doesn't specify the how or the how long, but it definitely teaches that all the visible and invisible universe came as a result of God the Father's creative design and actions. There is a creator, and it is the God of the Bible, and it is the God that we know and love and serve, the Father of all is the creator. 
That's the first truth the Apostle Paul chose to share with the pagan Greek uh, philosophers when, when Paul got uh, stuck in Athens for a little while, waiting for Timothy to join him. And, and he had time on his hands, and he walks into the marketplace. And here are Jewish, Jewish, here are uh, Greek philosophers discussing ideas back and forth. Not one of them raised a biblical idea. Not one. They had no knowledge of the Bible. They had no knowledge, really, of Old Testament realities. They had no knowledge of the, the Hebrew heroes of the past. They were discussing philosophical ideas, and, and Paul walks in and introduces them to the God of the Bible. And he begins by saying, I found a statue in your city here to many gods, but I found this one. It said to the unknown God, just in case there's one you don't know about, you build a statue so you would not offend him or her. Paul says, that God I declare to you. That God is the God who made the heavens and the earth. That's who I want to talk about. I want to tell you, Paul says, there is such a God. There is one who created all that is. That's a starting point. And that's where Paul started, with people who knew nothing. And if they're willing to accept that truth, then you can go on to other things. But if they are not willing to accept that truth... There's no sense talking about any others. Sometimes the unbeliever, sometimes one of the schemes of the devil is to get us so involved in all the minutiae of our faith, all the kinds of things that even Christians don't agree about, that we let people off the hook when it comes to saying, here's one thing that's absolutely, solidly foundational to everything. God has created all that is. There is a creator, and he has made himself known in this book. And by meeting and influencing human beings through time. That's the first proof that Paul began with, with the most intelligent men of his day. The second truth about the Father that must be shared arises from that first one. Now, people say, I don't believe in any creator. I don't believe there's anyone powerful enough to do that. It's like, well, fine. I'm just telling you there is. And he has revealed himself. And if you'll give me just half a second more, I'll tell you one more thing, and then I'll, I'll be done. But the one more thing is this. All men are accountable to him, that creator. All men are accountable to him. He created all that is, and he will one day call everyone into account. And he will evaluate their lives with an eternal destiny at stake. Paul said, Right to those Greek philosophers in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He says, God has set a day when he will judge the world. And so the question, of course, is are you ready for that day? That day is coming. God patiently waits 
and he waits and he waits, but that day is coming when he will judge, the creator will judge the entire creation by the standards that he establishes. And Paul even pointed out to them that the standard that God, the creator, has established is his own son. The purity, the holiness, the successful Christian or human living that Jesus Christ did. He will be the standard. Now Paul, before he mentioned the man, he makes sure they know that God the Father has the right to judge. He's the creator. And that God will exercise that right. In fact, he's already set a day. It's already on the calendar. That's a fundamental truth that all men need to know. But until they know and accept those two truths, there is a creator, and they are accountable to him. Until they accept those truths, there is no purpose in discussing any other truths. Because that just leads to arguments of their ideas versus your ideas and somebody else's ideas. Here is the thing. That's what they need to know. That's what you need to be sure and I need to be sure that anyone that we engage in any kind of spiritual discussion, anyone that we care about, that they must know and accept those two things first. That there is a creator and he holds us all accountable. Second thing, there are two truths that people need to know about the Son, about Jesus himself. Number one, and I, you, know, you know as well as I do, there's hundreds of truths here we could choose from. And if I asked you, if you could only tell people two things about Jesus Christ, what would you choose? And we might, even in this room today, as we all make our two choices, we might wind up with a total of 40 or 50. With all of us believing, we chose the two most essential ones. So here's just two I'm sharing with you. People need to know that Jesus Christ came to earth. That implies he is the Son of God. He came from the, the right hand of the creator of all. He came to earth and he lived a perfect life. That's a fundamental truth. Jesus Christ came, was born as a baby, came from heaven, grew into manhood, and lived a perfect life. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, He has been tempted. He was fully human. Yet he was without sin. The sinlessness of Jesus Christ... The perfection of his earthly life is a fundamental part of the knowledge of God that will one day cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. Everybody will know that. Fewer people know it today than knew it a hundred years ago. But someday everyone will know that, that Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived a perfect life. Jesus' sinlessness made him not just an example, 
but a miracle. He embodied perfect humanity, and he stands as man's standard. All of us will be compared to him. You will not be compared to your next-door neighbor. And hopefully you all have terrible neighbors. You say, well, compared to my neighbor, I'm pretty good. Maybe you have a wonderful neighbor, and you say, ah, oh, don't compare me to her. She is so incredible. But even she will be compared to Jesus Christ, who was more than incredible. He was perfect. Perfect. He is the one by whom and against whom all men will be judged. All men will fall short and do fall short of the standard he set. And thus, the second thing that people need to know about Jesus Christ is that he gave his life in payment for man's sin. Had none of his own. But men are all sinners. They all fall short. We all fail to meet that perfect standard. And Jesus Christ, who met that perfect standard, gave his life in payment for our sin. That's an incredible truth. Jesus didn't come to earth to help us have a better life. Jesus didn't come to earth to show us uh, the way to live a bit better. Jesus came to earth to live a perfect life and then to lay down his perfection in payment for our imperfection. That's what the story of Jesus is about. That's what Christmas is about as we head closer to that holiday. And that's what people in our world know little of. Second Corinthians 12.21, the Apostle Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be or become sin for us. Jesus, this incredible example of humanity. Jesus, this Son of God, lowered down into human flesh, who had no sin of his own, took his holiness and exchanged it for our sinfulness. And he allowed and made the way whereby human beings can escape the judgment of God. You see, Jesus is the standard. Perfection is the standard. But he made a way that you and I can meet the standard. It's like having someone with an A-plus paper slide it under your desk. And somebody said it's perfectly all right for you to erase their name and to put your name on it. Because the one sliding it somehow is in charge and can do that. And he takes your F and you get his A. You meet the standard because of the substitution. Jesus took his perfection, his holiness, and allowed it to become ours. And he took our sinfulness and allowed it 
to become his, and he was judged for it. And he died because of it. He gave his life in payment for man's sin. People need to know that. That's the most fundamental thing to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. He came from heaven, lived a perfect life, and then substituted himself in our place and died in our place for our sin so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus has been given to us. Now someday in heaven we will be as perfect as Jesus. But the Father sees us that way already because the substitution's been made. And we don't have to find ways to meet God's standard. We don't have to find ways to <clears throat> stop God, the judge, from being... <clears throat> ready to mete out punishment toward us. <clears throat> he no longer sees those who trust in Christ as needing judgment at all. That's what Jesus has done for us, for those who will accept him and believe in him, put their faith in him. That's all we need to do to believe that the creator has come up with such a plan and the son has carried it out to such perfection that we can just trust God that it's working. We not, might not feel any more holy than before we trust Christ. but we trust the Creator's plan and the Son's perfection that it's working and He has indeed saved us from our sin. That's what He came to do. And for those who will trust Him and believe the story and give their lives to Him, they become forgiven, cleansed, Two things to know about the Father. Two things to know about the Son. Here now, two things, two truths about the Holy Spirit. Numa himself. And there's a lot of Christians now in our country who don't know much about this. Many who have trusted Christ as their Savior, who have stopped their learning right there, who don't know the plan of God beyond that moment of salvation. But here's two things, fundamental things, to know about the Holy Spirit. One, he is given, given to all who trust in Christ as their Savior. You don't need to pray for him, beg him, try to figure out a way to get the Holy Spirit to, to know you if you've even heard about the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I get a little bit of that? The Bible says he's given. In the same way that forgiveness is given, the Holy Spirit as a personal presence in your life is given as soon as trust is exercised in Jesus Christ. Peter, in the very first sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter is talking about when they said, what shall we do? He says, repent. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall receive, he says, the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The gift of salvation is the, is the gift that, that is just given and once for all it's done with. But the gift of the Holy Spirit is a, is a ongoing, active work of God in you and with you. And Peter says, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ gives to you the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, without the knowledge of the Holy Spirit, men are left with truth that might become academic only. The Holy Spirit is the divine companion who brings the presence of the living God into the picture. And now you know. You become spiritually alive. God is with you. Not just truths of God have impacted you, but God himself is with you. Oh, to just hear one of our, one of our number who's experienced a loss in family, just share testimony. Numa is so present with me that, that it's like I could just touch him. I could feel him. And he's carrying me through this time. And there's peace in the heart. And there's a sense that it's real. It's not just a theological truth. It's real. The Holy Spirit is a personal presence of God with us. People need to know that. And know that he's given to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He's no second work of grace. He's the real deal from day one. He is your salvation. He is the way that everything God desires for you and for me to be done gets done. And so here's the second truth. He produces Christ-likeness in all who walk with him. Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. And then Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we, all of us believers, are being transformed. Not might be, could be, hope to be, because it has nothing to do with us. If we're walking with the Holy Spirit, it has to do with him. This is what he does. We are being transformed into the Lord's likeness. You see, that is how one becomes a Christian in deed as well as in word. As I like to say, the Christian life is not worked into, it is walked into. The Holy Spirit walks us right into the fullness of it. No one who knows the Holy Spirit has any list of things that they're trying to do to become a better Christian. No one who has the Holy Spirit need bother read a book entitled Secrets of Successful Christian Living. Anyone who has the Holy Spirit knows that this Holy Spirit is far more capable than we are And he has been sent to walk us right into the fullness of the Christian life. Our only task is to not resist him, quench him, or grieve him. Our task is to put our hands in his every day and submit to him, leading us a few steps further into that fullness of Christ. That is what people need to know about the Holy Spirit. Two truths about God the Father. 
Two essential truths about God the Son. Two essential truths about God the Holy Spirit. Let's do a little test. Let me just ask you a question. There's only six things, two, two, two. Do you think you can remember each of those two? What do we need to know about God, the Father? He's what? He's the creator and what? We're accountable to him. What do we need to know about God the Son? He came to earth and what did he do? He lived a perfect life and therefore he then what? Died for our sins. Our imperfections have been exchanged for his perfections. That's salvation. That's forgiveness. That's grace. That's all those things. And what are the two things we need to know about the Holy Spirit? He's given to us. Ah, do we need to have an all-night prayer meeting to get the Holy Spirit? No. In fact, probably at the end of that all-night prayer meeting with all kinds of chanting and whatever might be going on, we might wind up with a spirit that has nothing to do with holiness. We might just get a spirit of exhaustion, actually. He's given to us. Can we really believe that and say that and be confident enough to say that to somebody else, no matter what they might be saying, to be able to say the Holy Spirit, the first thing that I know is that he's given. He was given to me the very moment I accepted Christ as my Savior. And he's here. He doesn't leave. He came in the Spirit of Christ who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's here. He was given to me. He's real. He's a companion of mine. He's God's plan for me. He's the anchor runner on the relay team, and he will take me all the way to the finish line. And he was given to me. And then, what's the other thing? The second thing we want to know. He produces what? Christ-likeness. How do we come like Christ? Oh, read the right books. Pray excessively. No, just let the Holy Spirit do what he does. Don't get in his way. One of our nudges suggests the reality that there are such books as Secrets of the Christian Life. And on that day's nudge, Numa says to us, I wish they would all remain secret. They just get in the way. They're just people figuring out how this thing, how they would do it if they, in fact, were in charge of our lives or even their own. There's no figuring to it. God has given us a portion of himself, his own Holy Spirit, to walk us into maturity and grace and goodness and Christ-likeness. Just every day. Yield yourself to him. That's what people need to know. He's given to us and he works in us to, to create the outcome that God desires. But those six things, practice them, practice them on each other. And then when you get out there where, where you have people that really don't know much about God's truth at all, just work through them. Start with God the Father. Say, here's something absolutely fundamental in, in my understanding of spiritual truth. God has created all there is. 
Hopefully they'll nod their head, go that far along. Well, I don't know about... Well, if they don't know about that, there's nothing else. Who cares about the Holy Spirit? They're not... How, how could it be a Holy Spirit if they don't even believe there's a creator? So start with that. Start with your children this way. God has created everything. We are accountable to him. He watches over us. He will someday, we will stand before him and give account. Start with that, with a sense of responsibility, and then move on to tell them about Jesus. As they've realized that they can't even toe the line with their parents. How are they going to toe the line with God? How are they ever going to stand before a holy God and say, and have him say, well done, I can't find any problem with you at all. Any child is more honest than most adults. So they know they've messed up. They know they've done wrong. They know they've been punished in one way or another by their own parents. So yes, that lets them know they fall short. They fall short. And then we tell them that Jesus, Jesus came to earth <clears throat> he lived a perfect life. He never failed at all. But you know, he loves you so much, he died for you. He knew that you failed a lot. He knew and he knows that all human beings will fail a lot. And yet he loves us so much that even though he had no sin in himself, he took all of our sin upon himself and he died to pay the price so that we could take all of his goodness, all of his righteousness was given to us and the Father accepts us just as if we never had sinned at all. And then on top of that, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to all who accept Jesus as their Savior and accept that gift of forgiveness. And at that point, we're asking our children, have you done that? Do you want to do that? Do you want to accept Jesus as your Savior? And until they do that, there's no need to talk any further. But when they do that, and it says, here's something you need to know about the Holy Spirit. When you prayed and accepted Jesus as your Savior, when you asked God to forgive you for your sins, when you understood that Jesus died for you and you gave your life to him, God gave you something along with your salvation and forgiveness. He gave you a part of himself. He gave you the Holy Spirit who will be with you forever, just like he's with mommy and daddy. He's with us, and he loves you, and he knows everything God desires for you, and he will lead you as you just let him lead you every single day. And then in a family, that becomes the conversation. That becomes the orientation. That becomes the understanding of how we make it through this earthly life. The Holy Spirit guides us. He's with us, guides us as a family, guides us as parents, guides us as children. And people need to know that. And when you get right down to it, if you can help the people around you know those six things, how much more do they need to know? If we will stay focused on those six things, how secure 
we will be. And someday, someday, the knowledge of God that begins already to stir in our hearts is going to cover this entire earth the way the waters cover the sea. This entire nation, this entire state, specifically, and everyone will know God and will respond positively to him. Heavenly Father, may that be true right in this room right now. We are a little bit of a picture of what's coming someday in the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, where everyone in this entire world will know and have knowledge of the Lord. They will know the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that is, is governing all things. That'll be in that millennial kingdom. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. But Father, there's a bit of that that's coming to fruition right here, right now in this room. We are filled with the knowledge of the Lord. We embrace that knowledge to as much as we can, can understand it. We revel in it. And Father, everywhere we go this week, may that knowledge just find its way out of us into those who need to know it. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.